Hi, everybody. Welcome to the latest episode of The Sherman Show. I am uh, Jeff Sherman, along with my co-host, Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And uh, as you see, I forgot my name today, but I remembered Sam, so he's there. And it's because we are just amazed that we've been able to land such a special guest today. And today, uh, we are recording on Tuesday, September 12th, 2023. And we have none other than Liz Young from SoFi. So, Liz, welcome to the show. Hey there. Uh, so excited to be here. Yeah, and you, again, you forget, you made me even forget what my name was. So um, for those of you who don't know Liz, she's the head of uh, investment strategy at SoFi, responsible for the economic and market insights uh, for various amount of audiences, including The Sherman Show. So Liz, welcome to the show. Uh, let's get right into the meat of it. Before we get there, I'd like to ask guests about their background. So maybe you can tell me a little bit about who Liz Young is, how you got in the industry, and how you got to where you are today with SoFi. Sure. Uh, well, lo long ago and far away, uh, I now feel very old. It's you know, it's scary to look back and say that you graduated from college 20 years ago, but that is in fact the case. Um, so I've been working in the industry for almost 20 full years. I think 20 years will be uh, in December of this year. Anyway, um, I grew up in Wisconsin and I had lived in Wisconsin until I was 32 years old. So my career in finance started there, which is pretty untraditional. Um, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, obviously not the financial mecca of the universe, but there are some regional banks there. There are some uh, mid-sized brokerage firms, investment banking firms. So I started out there and fell in love with the investment industry, really at the, the pushing, the urging of one of my first mentors, if not my first real mentor in the business, uh, who encouraged me to start the CFA program. He was our chief strategist at the time, and I was young and green, and I didn't know up from down, but he molded me and he put the fire in me, and I fell in love with the investments business at that point. Uh, and then a couple steps later, I, I was an analyst uh, at Baird for a while. I, I did portfolio analysis at Baird. I did that for about four years. So all in, I spent about six years as an analyst. There was a lot of writing. There was obviously a lot of analyzing. Uh, and eventually I figured out that I like to talk too much to be an analyst sitting behind a spreadsheet. So I started to figure out what the other options were and got lucky enough that somebody took a chance on me and moved me to New York City and gave me a strategist role out of the gates, even though I had never done something like that before, and basically said, go get it, kid, sink or swim. And uh, I moved to New York, and the rest is history. That was in 2015. I became a strategist at the Bank of New York, uh, and I was there for six years after that. And then SoFi came knocking and plucked me out of the Bank of New York to start an investment strategy function for them. And my audience changed dramatically, right? I'm, I'm at a, a conference right now where the audience is mainly financial advisors, and that was really what it was before. And then my audience went to individual investors and a lot of younger investors, which uh, has been a delightful journey for me, a huge change, and it's really challenged me to figure out how to communicate and relay information and insights in a way that is going to resonate with a new audience. So it's been it's been really, really fun, and I love my job, and I feel lucky every day that I get to do this for a living. So on the Sherman Show, we do have someone who's familiar with Wisconsin, and uh, it's one of the two of us. Uh, I won't say which yet. But uh, maybe you could guess. Well, I gotta, I gotta ask a question first of all. How do I want? I want to hear both of you say Wisconsin. 
Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Uh, Jeffrey, I'm going to guess that you are the one that has some kind of connection. That is incorrect. So oh no, Mr. Mr. Lau, who is a uh, who grew up in Madison and went to the really raised, born and raised. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Are you a Badger? I am. I went to Madison, so just across the way from you. Yeah. Yeah. My uh, my little sister was in the marching band at Madison all four years. She played the saxophone. And my parents still have a Wisconsin band flag hanging on the front of their house, even though she graduated <laughs> a long time ago. <laughs> still very proud Badger fans. They still have season tickets to those games. And uh, yeah, it's it's great. So I'm happy to have uh, a, a kindred spirit on the podcast. Yeah, it's always a, a special type of person that comes out, I think, of, you know, the Midwest in general. You can usually pluck them out of a crowd after a couple uh couple of sentences right like this yep. even just in, you know, early on in the conversation so yeah it's the, the a's and the o's you never lose you can my accent has flattened out a lot since i moved to new york i've been i've been in new york for about eight and a half years now so i've lost much of it but the a's and the o's i'll never lose and there's certain words like sorry i'm sorry i don't know how to say it any other way everybody else sounds like they're saying i'm sorry and, and, and things <laughs> like bag or the, it's the long a's that are just always there they'll be with you forever that's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, so on that too, let, let's, um, you know, let, let's get out of the Midwest and let's go to SoFi. And you, you talked about how it's different these days from what you did as a strategist at BMY and your mm -hmm. client base and the folks you talk to. Um, maybe you can explain why that is and how SoFi is kind of penetrating this market. And again, bringing someone like you on board to be, you know, the head of investment strategy. Yeah, well, I think I think there's a lot of things that built up to this point, just in the industry, not just for SoFi, but in the industry as a whole. A lot of which was, if you look at what happened after the global financial crisis, I think investors, individual investors in particular, came out of that feeling like they had been kept under the rug, right? And and the wool had been pulled over their eyes and, and they didn't really know what they were invested in. And, and suddenly there was this appetite to understand everything better and really take matters into their own hands and, and get a lot more active in their own investing journey. So that was the beginning of it, right? People felt wronged by the industry and there were a lot of movements that went on. And the solution then turned out to be, okay, well, then I'm going to try to do it myself because- if I'm going to lose money, at least I know I made the decision on my own and, and it wasn't because I wasn't understanding what was going on necessarily. So there was a lot of education that started to come out. There was a lot of support for individual investors. And then ETFs and passive investing came out, which was really good for in individual investors because they were low cost. You could get exposure with a small minimum balance. So the industry changed and the opportunity set changed that made it a lot more conducive for younger investors and individual individual investors to be involved. So I think that was one of the bigger things that occurred. And then the industry started moving towards, you know, and this is something that that I remember from the BNY days when we worked so directly with advisors, moving towards a fee-based advisory model rather than a transaction-based advisory model, which was also good for the client. It was also good for the investor because if the market went up or down, the fees that were charged on your account went up or down in the same fashion, right? So then it became everybody's interests were aligned. Then the next step was, okay, do we really even need this high touch advisory stuff? 
And all of these brokerage platforms that were offering low cost or no cost trading made it a lot more accessible for individual investors to go and DIY their entire portfolio. And then you had robo platforms, right? So there's a lot of different steps that have happened along the way over the last 10 to 15 years that I think have been tremendously positive for individual investors. And SoFi is part of that movement. Our invest platform offers low cost, if low not cost free, if not right? Free. Trading and you can get fractional shares. You have a robo platform. We have an ETF suite. So there's a lot of different ways that people can get involved in that. And the app itself, the platform itself offers products for all different phases of your life cycle. And given the digital nature of investors today, that's just what they want. They want to be able to do it in the palm of their hand. They want to be able to have it accessible to them. And they want to feel like the platform and the content on the platform is for them. It's not for their parents. It's not for their grandparents. It's not for rich people only, right? So there's been this big movement to make things much more accessible um, and, and much more modern, frankly. So that's a big part of the audience shift for me. And then just the age group too. If you look at the average age of uh, a brokerage client, right? Some of the big older firms, a brokerage client, it's probably somewhere between 55 and 65 years old. The average age of a SoFi Invest client, we've got more than 60% of our investors uh, on the platform between the ages of 20 and 40. So a much younger client base, a much younger investor who want different things and want them in a different format. So that's the part that's, and and that was a big transition for me. That was a, a big transition to figure out, okay, how do I connect with them, right? I haven't done this before. And I, I got to sit back and think, well, how would I want to be connected with? And what would I want to be reading? And, and how long would my attention span be, right? So um, it's been a really big learning experience for me. So how do you, um, you know, as you think about that and, and you describe kind of the the needs and the desires of a SoFi Invest client versus kind of traditional brokerage, how do you think about the advice that you're helping as, you know, the head of investment strategy? I mean, are you still kind of ultimately landing in the same spot, but it's a delivery that's different or there's a different mechanism for that? Or is it a different way of kind of thinking and approaching markets given um, this engagement or or how uh, this generation, let's call it, is focusing on investing? Uh, yes, <laughs> <laughs> all, all of the above. So first and foremost, I would say my views on the market and the economy don't change based on the audience. I still think what I think about the economy. I still think what I think about the market, right? I'm not going to change my opinion uh, or my necessarily my investment knowledge or, or background or advice based on who I'm talking to. So that should always be consistent. The delivery of it, however, does change. Because as I mentioned, if, if most of the people on SoFi's plat platform reading my content or listening to me are newer investors, I have to start earlier in the process. I have to start by explaining, number one, what should your portfolio really look like, right? What does a diversified portfolio even mean? Well, Why like should you, you slow down when you describe it? What does it look like? Like, you know, right? so it's it's another delivery mechanism, yeah. right? Not my first rodeo. <laughs> yeah. So, and and there's a there's a big part of that where if you're a newer investor, and especially a newer investor who is not exposed to the industry, right? I think a lot of us who have been in the industry, 
sort of take that for granted sometimes that we've always been exposed to this and we understand the terms and we understand the basic fundamental uh, relationships between macro and micro and we understand you know things about the market and taking that for granted makes the the audience if, if they don't know that same stuff it makes the audience feel disconnected they sort of glaze over you've lost them or at worst it they feel condescended right so you have to make sure that you're starting at the point where they are and giving it to them in the way that is going to resonate with them and that you're not going too fast i mean it, it is a tough balance i don't get it right every time it's a tough balance to not go too fast not go too slow give enough but you know not too little so it's important to remember what the starting point is i always think of it in the form of a, a you are here star so for example if i go on cnbc let's say the audience is mainly financial advisors or or i know that we're covering a topic that that is a little bit more sophisticated I probably speak at a different level than I would if I knew I was sitting in front of a 25-year-old who was just starting to invest in a retirement account for the first time. I would use different words. I would slow down and talk about the fundamentals of building a portfolio and what risk really means. So it is about the delivery. It's also about how they want to receive it. So the content that might my analyst and I, so my team puts out, we do it in every format possible. I have a podcast, a couple of podcasts that I do. I have written content that's weekly, monthly, semi-annual, annual. annual. Uh, we've got social media stuff that's daily, right? It's every single way that you could receive it because not everybody wants to get it in the same way. If you're not watching CNBC, then I'll give it to you in a podcast form, right? And then the attention span is different as well. So uh, the social media stuff fills that gap if people don't have enough time and they just want something quickly. This is a fun stat. So we did a survey, uh, I believe either last year or the year before, 91% of Gen Z investors get their information from social media, which tells you that if you're trying to capture that next generation you better be on social media in order to get in front of them because that's where they want to receive it. Now, if you've been in the business a long time and you're sort of you know, a traditional, uh, an old timer in the business, that probably makes your skin crawl. Like, oh my God, social media is unregulated information and nobody's verifying it and everything. I feel the same way. There's some really bad information on social media, but the reality is that's where the eyeballs are. So you know, it's one of those things that, whether it makes you uncomfortable or not, you have to find a way to get comfortable with it if you want to resonate with that next generation. What's really got us so, lately is what's really got us lately is this whole Elon taking over X, formerly known as Twitter. As they, I love how it says it every time. It's like when bond prices go down, yields go 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 up. Um, but the thing is, is that you know all of us got cut off on the trading desk lately because. We're not going to pay eight bucks for that information and everything too. We already pay enough for our data sources and everything. And so we we just uh, recently, like just none of it worked anymore. So anyway, that's my complaint about social media. I'm going to sound old and curmudgeon -y, And I graduated from college way more than 20 years ago. So anyway, <laughs> Sam, I cut you off. I just had to put that little comment on there. My little jab at, uh, at X going to give it to you. Yeah, X is going to give it to you, but you know, before that, there was Reddit, right? So when you started to talk about uh, how social media is is a way to disseminate, you know, financial information, perhaps not in the best way sometimes, but you know, it just made me think back to the meme craze, you know, back in uh, the two thousand early two thousand twenty. 
right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of uh, some of the what were those feeds, those RSS feeds? We used to get those through our Google yeah. News. I still don't know what RSS stands for. Yeah, yeah, it stands for it was way cooler than Twitter, and it worked. But um, you know, anyway, uh, maybe yeah. it wasn't cooler. I don't know, but uh, but I guess maybe we just learned it first. So anyway, sorry, Sam. Yeah, no, but uh, yeah, I just wanted to put that out there too. But um, just you know, earlier you were talking a little bit about your views, you know, how you're thinking about the world, both from a macro, from markets point of view, and then perhaps you know how you're thinking about allocation. But before that, you know, I think you hinted at it a little bit just now, but was interested in, in trying to pick your brain in terms of how you actually arrive at at your investment views. How do you mm. make you know come up with your investment views? Are you looking more at fundamentals? Are you looking at the macro? Are you looking at technicals? Are you just drawing everything together that's out there? So I think of it sort of like a funnel um, or or maybe just a globe. And then I sort of, I hone in on it from there. So for me, it, it usually does start with macro because I feel like I want to know what the weather is like before I try to figure out what's happening on the ground. So try to figure out the weather. And for me, that's all right. Where do I think we are in the cycle? I may be very wrong. I have felt very wrong this year. I have thought we were late cycle and maybe we are late cycle, but we've been in it for a long time. Try to identify where we are in the cycle roughly. And then using those indicators, right? That's things like what's the consumer doing? Where is sentiment? What's been the trajectory, not just the absolute readings, but the trajectory of growth, consumer spending, unemployment, um, manufacturing activity, services activity, inflation, right? All of those really large macro indicators, leading economic indicators. So that's the the environment. That's what I would consider the weather. So that's you walk outside and this is how it feels today. And this is how it's felt for about a month. And then you look at, at least what I try to do then is take, okay, here's what I think about the macro is the market reflecting that same thing or is the market reflecting something else? So then you look at the market, uh, the bond market, for example, maybe you look at where yields are. You look at the spreads between yields. Is the curve inverted? Has the curve been inverted for a long time? What does that usually mean for the next six to 12 months? You look at the stock market, which sectors are outperforming or underperforming. So for example, something like uh, something as simple as comparing consumer staples to consumer discretionary over whatever the time frame is. If discretionary is outperforming, people are feeling like we're in some sort of cyclical expansion. Conversely, if staples are outperforming, obviously investors are a little bit more defensive. So taking the macro, try to confirm it with some of the market signals. If there are inconsistencies, then in my head, it means one of the two is wrong, right? One of these two data sets is sending the wrong message or is the timing is off. And then you try to figure out what's happening. What's happening right now, frankly, is that I think the market has been on this tear of uh, we will be saved no matter what. And there's been this solution. uh, Tech has been the solution at large. Now, of course, it went through a pretty big correction in 2022 based on rates. But it's still this underlying sense of, okay, in good environments, buy tech. In bad environments, buy tech. And that's one of those things that I think is a sentiment and sort of a a mind shift that probably needs to normalize at some point. I'm not saying tech is bad. If you believe in the future of the American economy, you have to believe in technology, right? But there is no such thing as an investment that works in all environments. And 
when valuations get to a point that just don't make rational sense, something's got to give. Maybe it's the other side of the equation that's got to give. And in this case, that would be yields. But so looking at those signals, macro, then market, and then if you got to really drill down, you can look at some of the smaller industry groups um, and then try to figure out if there are smaller data sets that are, they can be really, you know, tiny, tiny things that people don't hear about on a headline basis, but digging into that stuff to figure out where the inconsistencies are. Yeah. And one of the things that you mentioned there is just the, you know, trying to figure out where we are in the cycle. And then the, the idea that many of us thought we were coming into a late cycle coming into 2023, but now, you know, the narrative shifts between hard landing, no landing and soft landing, right. Mm -hmm. Depending on, you know, on the weather, let's just say, but I guess the question I have now is, I mean, has the notion of the business cycle really changed? Have, should we rethink what it is to have a business cycle? Because now that policymakers are really coming in either from the fiscal side or or the monetary side, you know, you, you take your pick since the global financial crisis and just really extending the life of the business cycle to the point where there really isn't a default cycle in the way that it should be in, in, in terms of a, a cleanse of the overall you know, be it the corporate side or the consumer side. Really, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at the, the the Federal Reserve here. You know I mean, when, yeah. you, when you think something has to give, does, do central banks are do we have that tolerance now to for something to give, or are they just or will they let something give? I guess. Uh, I think we're conditioned as investors and as market participants to believe that we will be saved by the central bank. Uh, one of the things, you know, we looked at, we talked about this today on, on a show, the regional banking thing, I don't even know if that I can call it a crisis. It was so quick, right? The regional banking thing that happened in March of this year, when it started, I think we all were sort of like, uh Oh, here it is. This is the thing. This is the one that's going to take us down. Right. And then it got saved. There was this open-ended insurance program that was created. And again, our conditioning was reinforced that, oh, okay, so if something occurs, if something in the, the capital system breaks because of stress, it will be fixed by fixed or saved by monetary policy or fiscal officials. And one of the points that that I made earlier today was the regional banking crisis was saved. It wasn't solved. We still have mark-to-market issues. Deposits are still something that banks are worried about. They're trying to buy deposits, trying to attract deposits, and they've got this competition from the bond market that they haven't had in 40 years, right? Because yields are suddenly more attractive in a bond market or in a money market than in a, a savings account. So there's this deposit competition. That is always the case. If yields are higher, somewhere else, a rational investor should go buy the other thing, right? So that's a pretty rational response. And the idea of you know monetary policy and fiscal policy, yes, I think it's become a bigger part of what drives markets today because of our conditioning and because of the constant reinforcing of that conditioning. But what it's also done is create this this thing that probably cannot go on forever. And, and, you know, I think there were probably people that thought ZERP, zero interest rates could go on forever. And now we know that that's not the case, right? So we've come out of one regime and gone into another regime of, okay, rates are now up, but we still have this sort of never ending punch bowl of stimulus if something ever goes wrong. In my eyes, that's probably the next thing that can't last forever. So 
to answer your question directly, has the business cycle changed because of that? Um, I'm going to sound like an old timer here. I don't think so. I think that the business cycle is the business cycle, no matter what. There may be different catalysts that take us from one phase to the next, and there may be different catalysts each time that cause stress, but the cycle still has an early, mid, and late phase. And then I've never seen a cycle that goes from early, mid, late, and gets back to early without some kind of contraction, without some kind of shakeout. And that's what I think we're all sort of anticipating right now. It just hasn't happened. The last thing I would say about that is that if you look over history, and of course, history is only a guide, it rhymes, it doesn't repeat all the stuff, right? I get it. But if you look over history and you take averages, averages of, number one, look at how long after the beginning of a Fed rate hike cycle does it typically take to have a recession show itself? That lag time is usually somewhere between 12 and 18 months, okay? We are currently in month 17. How long after a yield curve inversion does a recession typically start? The long-term average is 14 months. We are in month 14. So all of this, like, this time is different. What if it's not? What if it is exactly the same and it's right around those long-term averages? We'll look back on this in a year or two and say, oh, look at that. It turned out to be pretty much the same as what we should have expected, right? It's just that, and, and actually... Jeffrey Gunlock said this today on stage. He said, everything takes longer than we think because we're impatient. And I think that's happening right now. Yeah, I also think it's the rapidity and the velocity of how the rate hikes came through. And remember, our debt stock was refinanced quite low at ZERP, at low interest rates. I've been harping on this for over a year that I actually think this, this lag is longer than a traditional one. And, the, and the, especially as soon as the Fed put out the paper at the beginning of the year, it said it's going to be shorter because of forward guidance. And I'm like, no one's listening to your forward guidance. Um, it's all about having to refinance debt. It's about making it the opportunity cost more expensive. And it just isn't until you have to sell your home. You have to refinance your mortgage. You have to refinance the corporate debt stock. And so there are pockets that obviously have challenges and those are called floating rate. But our listeners know I've been harping on this for a long time, so I'm with you, Liz. The other thing about averages is they're just average, and we know that there's volatility around the averages, and so that doesn't mean that it just because you hit the 14-month mark on the yield curve version that everything is all right. clear. Right. With that. What, one thing let me, I just want to say, because I think the Fed takes, not I think, I know the Fed takes a lot of heat, and they have a very hard job. I am not somebody who will come out and say they're doing it wrong, and you know they don't know what they're doing. They are a highly educated, highly experienced group of people doing more modeling than any of us have any idea about, right? They only tell us a very small portion of what they actually are looking at. And I think they have a tough job. I think Jerome Powell learned a really hard lesson in 2018 about communication, and he has not repeated that same mistake, and I give him a lot of credit for that. Uh, I also think that he's done a really good job of being consistent, uh, if not even slightly annoyed sometimes when people ask him the same question over and over again, and he's like, the answer hasn't changed, stop asking, right? I respect that quite a bit. Uh, I do think, though, that they have a really tough job, and the idea of them giving forecasts, which they have to do every quarter, they give us their dot plot and they give us a new summary of economic projections. They are not going to come out and say, okay, we are forecasting a recession to begin in the first quarter of next year. And here's how that's going to shake out. So if anybody is waiting for the Fed to forecast said recession, it's not going to happen. They may think it, 
right? They may they may talk about it amongst themselves as a possibility or a likely possibility. They're not going to come out and say that to America, that by our estimation, it's going to begin here. But I will tell you this, what they look at is things like the three-month to 10-year spread. And if that's inverted, they also look at what's called the near-term forward spread. Both of those are inverted. So I can, I can pretty confidently say that they talk about the chance of recession behind the scenes. They're not operating you know, blindly, but it's tough to get it right. And they're going to take criticism no matter what, because on one hand, they want to constrict demand. They want to constrict capital in the economy because of their mandate to control prices. On the other hand, if that happens and it causes a recession, you know, it, it's, it's lose-lose, honestly. Yeah. I'm, I, I agree with a lot of that. I think actually Jay Powell's done a good job with all of this. I just think that it's going to be challenging because they want to be restrictive and they're going to keep rates high probably longer than they should. But that being said, they also don't want to signal that they're going to cut and stimulate another one of these rallies like you're talking about. Yep. So it, it is a tough, tough gig. I, and I think you're right. Jay's learned a lot on the job. One last thing. We talk about the inversion of the curve. I want you to tell me what you are signaling to your clientele out there about the attractiveness of something like T-bills versus buying longer duration treasuries today. And we all have opinions on this and things. And so curious on how you're advising clients. We hear a, a lot of, why don't I just park in the T-bill? Um, the phrase I hate around the office that our marketing folks say is T-bills and chill. I'm sick of yeah. hearing that. Um, you know, so uh, anyway, what what is your what is your thought about uh, this this part of the curve and what it's signaling? Uh, I think that there is good yield opportunity in short term instruments. So whether that's T bills or some kind of money market fund that is effectively invested in T bills, uh, there's good yield opportunity there. And if you are an investor who's waiting this out to to see if it comes to fruition that we have some sort of stress or that we have a recession, those are good places to be because you're getting paid to wait. I'm all about getting paid to wait. Okay. So I think T-bills are probably a good opportunity there. The, the longer end of the curve, now it may go up before it goes down. We've got a CPI. We've got CPI that is expected to go back up this month. I'm not sure when this is going to drop. Maybe we'll know what CPI is by then, but is expected to go back up this month. If we get some hot prints in CPI or things that surprise to the upside, you might see a, a further rise in the 10-year. And I think that it shouldn't be ignored that the 10-year yield has had this steady climb upward over the last six months. That, too, is an opportunity that we haven't had in many, many, many years, right? To buy a 10-year at four and a quarter, four and a third percent. And I do think that it's an okay place to be. Uh, if you think that there is a recession coming, if and when we confirm that, yields will fall, right? It, and it probably short-term falls faster, uh, but you should get a parallel shift at least across the curve of yields coming down just because of stress and, and the natural way that that plays out in the economy. I think the tricky part right now is figuring out whether or not inflation continues to be a beast, uh, which would just push yields higher. And, and my honest opinion. Yes, I do think rates may stay higher for longer, but anything is higher than ZERP. So do I think they're going to stay higher for five years? No, I don't think that the economy can withstand that. I don't think borrowers can withstand that. And I don't think the corporate maturity wall can withstand that. So I do think rates will come down uh, within the next six to 12 months, more so because 
I think that there will probably be stress that finally shows its ugly face and we'll start to expect rate cuts um, or we'll get a flood to safety that would be more so on the long end of the curve. Yeah, I, I would agree with a, a lot of that too. Like we're not abandoning the the slowdown narrative. We just had Goldilocks and you know, from Goldilocks, it's hard to get better uh, than what we've had with the disinflation, the above average growth. But uh, don't forget when you talk about the borrowing costs and withstanding it, don't forget there's also one, per, one, one other entity and that's called the US government. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that can't really struggle, uh, that will struggle at these levels absent some level of inflation. Liz, I know you're in a hurry, you gotta go. We really appreciate the time. Thank you for spending it with us today. However, before I let you go, we got to introduce you to Sam's favorite part of the show. Okay. All right. right on me. My favorite part. Yeah, my favorite part of this show is called Sherman Says. It's where I will offer a series of alternating prompts between you and Sherman to elicit a top of mind response. Sherman is going to pave the way here with the first example. So the first prompt's going to him with labor strikes. Seem to be working, right? I mean, we got, we got, um, you know, a lot of these strikes seem to be working. I know there's still one going on in LA, but um, seems to be getting, uh, labor still seems to have the upper hand. And so you see it in wage growth, you see it in kind of negotiating contracts. And I did talk to my UPS driver the other day, because I do that, Sam, as you're well aware, um, as he drops something off. And, He's just stoked that they're going to get air conditioning uh, as part of their labor. And I'm like, you guys still don't have air conditioning? I mean, I felt so bad for him. So um, anyway, um, uh, they're they're electrifying their fleet. They're doing it. Um, they're getting AC. So power, Our trucks power don't have air conditioning? No, in Southern California. He's talking about how people in like, out of like Indio and off of the 15, like they've, they've lost people. They've, they've died driving, you know, because you're talking oh about triple digit weather you know, for long periods of time. So I can't imagine Phoenix and stuff. I don't know what they do. So uh, thank your local UPS driver next time they bring you something in that yeah. nice delivery. Jeez, so, yeah, okay, always, got it. Always. Yeah. All right, this one's for you, Liz. Mm-hmm. Interest rate risk. Hi. <laughs> Am I supposed to give more than a one word answer? Um, But but different than it was a year ago. So a year ago, interest rate risk, the risks were to the upside, right? We were uh, only a few months into a hiking cycle and no end in sight. Now we are on the other side of that. I think we all can agree that we're closer to the end of it than we are to the beginning. Um, I think the risk and interest rates is really just the volatility of them. And the yield curve inversion is the biggest piece of that. You rarely, if ever find your way out of an inversion this deep without some kind of stress. So uh, I've, I say this so much and anybody who listens to anything I say or, or reads what I write, you're tired of me saying this by now, but it's not the inversion that gets you. It's the re-steepening. Yep. That's right. And unless it's a bear steepener, which it doesn't usually happen at these points of the cycle. I know some people are calling for that. Um, the bear steepener, I'm still not convinced that that gives us good economic sledding either. So anyway, um, your one word answer, you turned into Sherman, turned one word into like a three minute diatribe. So, uh, but it's, it's insightful. So thanks Liz. Of course. Yeah. It seems like a bear sleep, bear receiver would lead to a bear flattener as the, uh, the fed is not going to let that get carried away too much. So, um, yeah. Sherman, this one over to you with, uh, Goldilocks. Did Goldilocks have a song? You know, I'm just thinking, you know, like I wanted to sing something there, but, um, you know, we've been in it. Goldilocks is, is not uh, its optimal conditions, but 
optimal conditions uh, turn out to be suboptimal because they don't last forever. So um, enjoy it. As I tell the, the folks on the team, enjoy the credit we own, enjoy the risk we own. Uh, it's been good. It's kept us, you know, um, you know, above water, uh, but also don't fall in love with it just because the prices are higher. So you can't extrapolate Goldilocks. I'm going to add right. to that that the Goldilocks story is not itself without the three bears. And she's had her moment in the spotlight, but she is outnumbered by the enemy now. Ooh, I like it. It's, it's, that's a good, good, that's a good way to bring it back. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> All right, Sherman. Uh, or wait, no, I'm sorry. Lewis, no, it's her turn. Yeah, yeah. U.S. consumer. U.S. consumer wants to spend but is running out of strength to do so. There was uh, some data that came out recently about real incomes. Real incomes have fallen mostly because of inflation. And the thing that I think is going to start to really show itself is the fact that, yes, inflation growth rates have slowed, but prices have not come down. And there's been a pretty big bite taken out of uh, a lot of consumer finances because of that over the last year and a half. And it's happening at a time when oil prices have gone back up. Gas prices are at highs again. Uh, not a good setup for the consumer spending story. So um, I don't like betting against the U.S. consumer. Obviously, I think they're one of the most resilient groups in the world, and they continue to hold up our economy. There is no such thing as a U.S. expansion without the consumer. But I do think that the days of post-pandemic spending are quite a ways behind us. Yeah, I'm, I'm concerned about the oil prices as well. Uh, we've been lamenting about uh, petrol prices around here, what we're paying at the pump once again. And I think hey, a lot has been made about the student loan resumption, but you couple that with higher oil prices, that, that takes a bigger bite out of people's wallets much quicker as well. So, All right. Just keeping this on uh, oil prices, $90 WTI, 90 handle, let's call it WTI. I mean, it's only a couple of trading days away, right? We hit 88 today, right, Sam? Uh, we had not, we have 90 on Brent. It just kind of seems inevitable at this point, right? Um, maybe we're through the driving season a little bit, the seasonality, but um, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be betting against it, let's say. So, um, which means brace for it. I mean, uh, I look at gasoline; it's at least 75 to 80 cents a gallon higher than it was two months ago. At that point, and you fill up tanks depending on how much you're driving. You know, I mean, that easily translates to another hundred bucks a month, right, out there. So it, it gets it, it gets taxing after a while. And um, so, again, um, I, I I get nervous when I see people celebrating energy, the energy stock market performance doing so well right now. And I might be careful what you wish for there. So, um, again, strategic line reserve, all that stuff's irrelevant. This is about supply and demand and the rest of the world kind of choking off some supply at this point. We are drilling. We're doing what we can here, but I think we're we're stuck in this eighty to ninety five range for a while. Yeah, uh, right. the supply constraints are supporting oil and gas prices. I'm actually I'm bullish on energy stocks. There's a lot of shareholder friendly energy stocks out there, and the valuations are very attractive. But taking it back to the macro and and what's the environment, uh, you have to look back and realize that many recessions are preceded by a spike in oil prices. So a spike in, in prices is not going to give me the warm and fuzzies for what's ahead for the next six to 12 months. But for the time being, I am bullish on energy stocks. All right, let's see how you feel about this sector then. Uh, floating rate assets, Liz. <laughs> floating rate assets. I mean, well, I just talked about interest rate risk before and the risk being that there's volatility, not necessarily that uh, things are, are going to 
go up or down in the near term in one definitive fashion. Um, what I would say about floating rate is that typically they are high yield rated. They are junk bond rated. And if you're buying those in bond form, spreads are really tight right now. We've got high yield spreads somewhere in the mid 420s. Uh, that's very, very tight considering where I think we are in a credit cycle and, and where some of the stress might start to, to rear its ugly head. So I would be careful uh, with where spreads are. I think they are pretty ripe for some kind of blowout. It's funny you say that because investors love floating rate when it's going up, but then they don't think about the other side. It's called the debt service to the one who's actually borrowing. So remember, you're a lender in this capacity. So it, it's been a great place to be, um, but you you got to be careful. You got to look at the underlying. So I agree with you, Liz. All right. Final round here. Sherman, you got Seminoles. Looking good, uh, thrashing up on those LSU Tigers week one, SMU. I mean, that wasn't really great. I mean, like it was a massive blowout again. Uh, but again, they're they're looking pretty strong right now. And uh, they're looking to uh, change divisions, right? Like everybody else. So uh, they're they're looking to reckon with the SEC. So go Knowles. Uh, I'm shocked you didn't talk about how the Niners put a thrashing on the Steelers this week, Sam. Um, I know that uh, it's unfortunate what happened to Mr. Rogers last night. Even though we all, um, you know, kind of root against the Jets because of one of our colleagues, um, that was horrible to see. So um, again, um, if we're extrapolating Week One, uh, Jets Niners Super Bowl, I guess. So uh, as we know, it was really the fourth week of the preseason, as we all say out there. So anyway, um, uh, again, we'll we'll see how things look so far. But uh, Noel's looking good two weeks in. Uh, Niners looking real, real strong in that defense against uh, what was supposed to be a really good Steelers team. So anyway, I'll stop. So right, my Liz, question about uh, bring the Packers. It home for us. Yeah, bring us bring it home for us with some Wisconsin style here. You got to shut yeah. down some of Sherman's uh, excitement there. I'm going to give it to you with uh, Jordan Love. Thank you. Uh, that's like the, a meatball. Thank you for tossing me that. Um, out of the gates, hot. And I love that start to the season. You know, I think we all as Packer fans went into this biting our nails like oh god Rogers is gone what's it going to do to the feeling in the locker room and all of that and uh then Rogers tore his Achilles on the first drive and Jordan Love went down a hero in game one so um I'm loving it I think all we need is love and I am very happy with how the season started especially against the Bears <laughs> yep no I will say Jordan Love is still no Brock Purdy but he did look pretty good you know he did look pretty good this week so I'll take it. Um, yeah, no, um, look, um, you know, I always like playing Aaron Rodgers in any playoffs because he's uh, 0-4 against the Niners in the playoffs. So uh, He's done. I'll Isn't try. he done? He's done for the yeah. season, I think. He's. I think he's done probably for a career. I mean, look, I hope he comes back, you know, but um, Achilles is And you're tough. still calling for a Jets Super Bowl without Rodgers, huh? I just said it was extrapolating week one. I'm not oh, actually. Oh, I see. I see. Okay. I didn't even yeah. have a Jets Super Bowl with, with Rodgers in, so. Uh, oh. No, okay. It was more of a joke. I mean, we couldn't make it to the Super Bowl with him for the last like 11 years. So, I, hey, yeah. hey, more power, I mean, more power to years, the Jets, I suppose. In the last 11 years, I've watched the Niners get real, real close, go to the Super Bowl and lose it. So, I don't know what's worse, but it was fun beating Rodgers at the NFC Championship uh, about five years ago, I think it was. So, Liz, I knew you were in a hurry. However, before you go, how can people learn more about you, what you do with SoFi? What's the best ways to get in touch uh, so you can follow you and get a lot of your interesting insights? 
Well, you can always follow me on Twitter at Liz Young Strat. Same handle on Instagram, but I post a lot more on Twitter. I'm not so good at the gram. Uh, I write a weekly blog on SoFi's website. That's under the On the Money tab. You can find my weekly blog there. Uh, I also do monthly stuff. I have a podcast that actually just started again this week. We started season three of my podcast. It's called The Important Part. So check that out. We're in the midst of a three-part series about the individual investor. Those are all the spots I can think of right now. Watch watch TV. I show up on the on the telly once in a while, uh, and I yeah. do some other pods and stuff. Okay, I, I like that. Watch the TV as our yeah. parents watch the TV. Up, right, yeah. make sure you watch the TV, or mm-hmm. as uh, you Wisconsiners call it, the telly. I see I, the I'm, tube. I'm, yeah. Okay. So anyway, Liz, thanks for thanks for uh, keeping it light here. Thanks for being educating and entertaining. And we really appreciate you spending time with us today. So thanks again. Absolutely. For, Thank you so much for having me. And for our listeners out there, again, you can still get these where all your podcasts are served through that audio channel. Uh, we also have the YouTube. If you want to see what we're looking like today, uh, you can mainly focus on Liz instead of Sam and I, um, but that's on youtube.com backslash double line capital. Um, and again, uh, we look forward to getting some more feedback. We can get that Sherman show at double So thanks again, Liz. Thanks for spending time with us and take care, everybody there. We'll be back in a few weeks. This presentation was recorded on the date indicated. Views and opinions expressed herein are those of the individual and do not necessarily reflect the views of DoubleLine Capital LP, its affiliates, or employees should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. The presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the express written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representations or warranties regarding the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this material. Liability, including any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is explicitly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice. The receipt of this presentation by any listener should not be construed as the provision of investment advice by any DoubleLine entity or individual, nor does it imply that such person becomes a client of any DoubleLine entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but it does not imply low risk. Copyright 2023, Double Line Capital.